to the Weird Warriors podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this episode of the show, we will be taking a look at Weird War Tales number 28. But first, Rich has some retroactive history for you. Yes, I do. Falling under the category of well-timed magazine pickups. Going all the way back to Weird War Tales number nine the story of blood brothers we was uh, we were wondering what, what was life like at west point in the days immediately before and during the civil war well thanks to the american battlefield trusts magazine hallowed ground there's an article in here about west point that covers that very time period so i shall read fragments of said article now southerners had more to lose than a war of brothers In those times, an allegiance to states trumped allegiance to the Union. If their state, their home, their people, seceded, most of them believed, they must secede with it. They would resign or be dismissed for refusing to take an oath of allegiance to the Union. If war came, they would fight for their states against the Union they now served, destroying their careers in the process. Cadet Pierce Young of Georgia wrote his parents, You and the others down there don't realize the sacrifice resignation means. But every Southern cadet and West Point graduate knew the cost. Cadet Edward Anderson of Virginia, who refused to take the oath of allegiance to the Union and was therefore dismissed, wrote his mother, I actually cried. I knew well that I resigned everything. Another Virginia cadet, Tom Rowland, captured the Southern despair in a letter to his father. What is to become of our glorious Union? Everyone seems to despair of its perpetuation, but I cannot give it up. I will catch at the last straw and stand by the Union until all is hopelessly lost then we must cast our lot with Virginia and hope for the best. During the nearly six decades before the Academy's founding in 1802, there had been little sign that the North-South split over slavery was cracking the West Point Brotherhood as it was the rest of the country. James Ewell Brown Stewart, Jeb Stewart, haunted tank, who graduated in the class of 1854 and became Robert E. Lee's cavalry commander in the Army of Northern Virginia, explained there seems to be a sentiment of mutual forbearance. This forbearance was shattered when hot-blooded abolitionist John Brown launched his ill-starred raid at the Harper's Ferry Armory on October 16, 1859, to seize arms and incite a slave rebellion. Brown went to the gallows, and sectionalism arrived at the academy, with the North-South split now raging openly at West Point as it did everywhere else. Arguments, challenges, and fights broke out between Northern and Southern cadets. When Abraham Lincoln was elected president in early November 1860, tensions hit the ceiling. In a letter to their local Columbia Guardian, a group of South Carolina cadets wrote, we cannot so stifle our convictions of duty as to serve under such a man as Mr. Lincoln as our commander-in-chief. On November 19, 1860, red-haired secessionist firebrand cadet Henry S. Farley departed a month and a day before his native South Carolina seceded. Many other Southern cadets were baffled about when to jump. For those who decide when and prepared to jump, the enduring brotherhood kicked back in. The acrimony over slavery and secession that had followed John Brown's raid at Harper's Ferry gave way to fond farewells, with departing cadets carried to the boat landing on the shoulders of those remaining. By April 12, 1861, Confederate cannon ringed Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor, waiting to fire and thus end Southern cadet bafflement. By the end of April, 65 of the 68 Southern cadets had left West Point either of their own accord or having been dismissed for refusing to take an oath to support the Union. Not all Southern West Point cadets or graduates jumped, 
Among them were a handful of high-ranking officers, including George Thomas, who graduated in the class of 1840. Thomas, one of the best Union generals of the war, suffered bleak isolation from his home in Virginia and angry, unforgiving scorn from his three sisters. They turned their brother's picture to the wall, destroyed his letters, refused to acknowledge his existence, and never forgave him for his disloyalty to the state. As a sidebar, General Thomas is, is uh, buried uh, right here in Troy, New York. I've been to his grave, and yeah, even after he died, his sisters refused to come to the service, so that that lasted, you know, forever. Many West Point cadets had seen part of that of the world and readied themselves to command in the Civil War during the Mexican-American War of 1846 to 48. In one of the most stunning successes in U.S. military history, former West Pointers had fought under Major General Winfield Scott, one of the finest battlefield commanders in American military history, and distinguished themselves. In this new war, the graduated cadets mentored by Scott, as expected, began immediately assuming high command on both sides. There was an irony in this. If the Mexican conflict was kept short because of their competence, the Civil War would stretch across four long, wrenching years because of the same talent. All had been trained in the same military and engineering rooms at West Point, graduated with the same knowledge and skill set, and marched on the plane and taken fire together. These equally trained officers monopolized high command throughout the war, and at 60 major battles, 55 were commanded on both sides by West Pointers, and the other five, one of the commanders, was also a West Pointer. One of the results of that near total monopoly of leadership was an equilibrium of competence that frequently stopped one side from utterly destroying the other and seriously elongated the time it took for one side to win. In the Civil War, 217 Academy graduates became general officers in the Union armies, 146 in the Confederate armies. 105 graduates were killed in the war, 60 Union, 45 Confederate, and another 151 wounded, a total figure that amounted to 25% of all graduates becoming casualties. So, yeah, there you go with what happened at West Point during the war. It was an astounding three-page article that just pretty much answered all the questions that we had from uh, from the Blood Brothers storyline. Yeah, so, I was I was seriously wondering what the heck the deal was. So that is awesome that you stumbled onto that, man. And when you the day we when, record no less, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and the day you record that we're gonna record, yeah. And when you mentioned John Brown and the raid on the the armory in Harper's Ferry, I'm like, what? I just saw a miniseries called The Good Lord Bird on like Hulu or something. Gail and I watched it, and it was all about him. And you know, ended with the raid on the arm the armory. So I was like, holy crap! John, John Brown's farm is. You know, an hour and a half north of here, but um, North Elba, near um, near Gore Mountain, and near Lake Placid, uh, not Whiteface Spot, not Gore Mountain. Sorry, um, I've, you know, I've been up there once. Uh, you know, Grant's Cottage is right up the road. It's you know, we we just released our, our uh, special mission about uh, GI combat with with you know Jeb Stewart and everything else. So again, the timing is phenomenal. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, yeah like I said, I, I figured that's the you know we had to drop this today just to prove that we are paying attention and whenever we find things that we had questions about in previous episodes we will try to get that out to you <laughs> hey don't 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 drag me into this you are paying attention and i'm just pleased surprised as, i'm surprised as all heck that i'm like wait a minute 
I know what the heck Rich is talking about. <laughs> I think it's the first time in my life. So, so there we go, people. That, 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 and that is not enough. We got that awesome retroactive history report in which I was actually familiar with one of the datum points, unbeknownst to me beforehand. And now Rich has even more for you before we get going. Another piece of bonus content called the Intel Report. It's a little bit of an old one. Fire team. Six black and white issues by Aircell or Malibu comics published in 1990. Don Lummox writes and pencils. He's most well known for the phenomenal Vietnam journal title, Rose Lummox X. Com Key McMurphy is half Vietnamese, half American, and feels as if he doesn't belong to either race. His uncle, Win Van Tan, Raised him from birth, and the two live in an area of town that is controlled by a skinhead gang called the Future Shock. Ooh, that's the 90s. These criminals cause the inhabitants of the neighborhood to live in fear by forcing them to pay protection money. When Wynn refuses to pay, he and Com are beaten to within an inch of their lives, and the family store is burned to the ground. The police, for their part, don't even bother to file a report. Then hope appears in the form of a ghost from the past. When Wynn was young, right after Com was born, he worked with the U.S. Special Forces team in the twilight days of the war in Vietnam. The team was composed of six men who died while evacuating women and children from a fire base that was being overrun. Now the fire team has come back from the dead to save Wynn and Cam. The return to Southeast Asia will also be required. Oh man, that sounds cool. I mean, didn't Lomax normally focus on more realistic stuff? Is this his only venture into like zombies or supernatural stuff? Uh, as far as I know, it is. I mean, he yeah, he did um, all this stuff for Vietnam Journal with Apple Comics in the nineties. I was the art is phenomenal. The writing is phenomenal. He took uh, he did a brief little uh, foray into uh, it was called Desert Storm Journal. You know, during obviously the war in Des- uh, in, um, in Kuwait and Iraq in, in 1990, 1991. Same character, just you know, thirty years older, and um, he's actually gone back to work. He's there's about another like uh, like two or three collections of uh, Vietnam Journal in, in softbound uh, um, paperbacks that are, are out there now, you know. So I'm like, woohoo, you know. So I've been you know you know jumped right on those and then buying those as they come out. So really, really, really well done stuff that uh, Don Lomax puts out. Yeah, man. I remember back in the day seeing, you know, in in that amazing Heroes magazine that I loved so much. And uh, I have a bunch of issues in the house, actually. They had like a coming attractions. And I saw, you know, they'd had everybody in there because the industry was a little smaller. So they had Apple Comics. And I'm like, ooh, Vietnam Journal. I should tell Rich about that. And I'm like, he already knows. And sure enough, we go into Aqualonia and you've you've already got that in your pull box. So, yeah, I, I remember that from back in the day. I'm like, if anybody's already got this it's it's gonna be rich we go down yep there it is cool <laughs> so and that's awesome that he's he's back he's back doing books again I, I, that's fantastic i i had no i have no idea about the guy how old he is nothing well there was that what that that remember uh tomorrow's came out with that history of uh war comics was that probably about like six months ago by now probably Yep. And we're talking about all the greats, you know, you know, Kubert and Glansman and Heath and blah, blah, blah. Then they, the, the, the last chapter was, the, you know, the, uh, the next generation kind of thing. And it was like um, Van Zant, Lomax and Ennis were like the guys that are, you know, bringing, you know, you know, keeping, keeping the genre alive kind of thing. 
was, again, it was kind of cool saying, oh, well, they, they, they considered, you know, Don me that good. I mean, I do, but I don't know if anybody else did. But I mean, they yeah. should. It's like, and I love Tomorrow's, man. I, I would order a copy of that book, but they have these sales. And I had like last summer, last summer, I ordered so many books that they had like half off or whatever that I'm just buried in, in these biography books I want to read. So, and I read so slowly. So slowly. So seemed like that, a good idea at the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I got <laughs> stuff to read until long after I'm dead. So there we go. <laughs> we got the Intel report out of the way in style. Retroactive history was a huge callback for us, and and I I really wanted to know that stuff. So there we go. We're gonna take a little break right now. Play a little podcast promo for you guys, and when we come back, we'll take a look at the issue at hand. Do you remember your first comic book? Do you remember the first time you held a cover in your hand and you flipped the pages? You read the adventures of these amazing heroes and you really fell in love with the medium. The first time you bonded a character to a team, to a company, and you knew, yep, I'm in this for life. Well, so do we. So join us on the never-ending reading pile from the Pulp to Pixel Podcast Network, where we proudly don our nostalgia goggles. We dive into our favorite comics, our favorite eras, our favorite characters, our favorite creators, and we just bask in the glory that is being a comic book collector. Come join us and help us chip away at the never-ending reading pile. And we are back. So as I said at the top, we're taking a look at Weird War Tales number 28. And as is SOP on the show here, Rich is going to hit you with that cover detail. Art by the old standby Luis Dominguez. 20 cents. A red and white weird war tale serves as the perfect eye catch on the black sky on the cover. Five American GIs crest a small knoll and are shocked to discover a massive footprint larger than any of them are tall in the ground before them. Behind the Americans, peering over a second knoll, the head and hands of a giant native glares at them in a threatening manner. Cover date, August 1974, date of release, May 23rd, 1974. No killjoy on that. Little C&C. While I like the artistic stylings of the giant native, the soldiers in the foreground almost looked like, were, looked like they were drawn by a different person. The detail just isn't there. I'd love to see the one on the far right fire his rifle the way he's holding it. And the one second to the left has this weirdly comical bug-eyed look. For that matter, so does the soldier leading the way. It's an eye-catching cover if you don't look at it too long. Yep, agreed on all <laughs> counts there. The, the coloring doesn't work for me either, which is probably a first for me in this entire series. It's an interesting effect having the giant and some kind of soft focus in the background, but it ends up looking more unfinished than anything else in the end to me. Also, the size of the footprint in the foreground in no way matches up to the scale of the native in the background. So as you said, it grabs the eye for sure, which is the cover's job, but it falls right down the stairs after that. So, you know, it, it did the work, but you can't look at it for too long. <laughs> so um, with the cover out of the way, this is a full-length battle tale this time around, but it's broken into parts, as is standard in the series, and Rich is going to take us into the first part of said full-length battle tale. Isle of Forgotten Warriors, part one, seven pages. 
Script throughout this issue is by George Cash Dan, and art throughout is by Alfredo Alcala, so expectations are high. It's the cover story, obviously. After a fierce battle, the Americans successfully capture an island from the Japanese. With only mopping up left to conduct, one of the soldiers has a pessimistic outlook. There's a jinx on this island. It's changed hands several times already. As soon as one side captures it, people and gear start vanishing into thin air. Lieutenant Colonel John Dearmont won't brook such nonsense in the Black Cat Battalion. Dearmont is an arrogant officer, carrying a swagger stick and the Black Cat mascot the unit is named after. As the cat jumps to the ground, Dearmont gives his word to his jumpy men that this mystery will soon be solved. Noticing his cat is chasing a butterfly, he points his swagger stick at it and presses a button. The cat howls as an electric shock arcs from his collar and the animal quickly jumps into Dearmont's arms. Remember this lesson, men. The fear of punishment is what keeps a beast faithful to its master. Strange way to treat his good luck charm. Days later, Dearmont is leading a mounted patrol on the island. There hasn't been a single skirmish since the landing, but 14 men are missing, along with two tanks, a howitzer, and 22 rifles. Several tattooed, loincloth-wearing natives wave at them as they drive by. Dearmont doesn't trust them. Despite intel that says the natives are a friendly people that never raise a finger against an invader, Dearmont is convinced they are behind the disappearances. A Japanese ambush abruptly tables the discussion. Outnumbered and surrounded, Dearmont and his cat follow the fleeing natives into the deep jungle. Suddenly, he is alone. The ground falls away from underneath his feet, and Dearmont tumbles into a deep shaft. He's dimly aware of being carried by three natives to a stone tub suspended over a fire and immersed in the strange searing liquid it contains. Darkness falls. When he awakens, Dearmont believes he just had a nightmare. He doesn't recognize the strange barracks nearby and can't find his cat or swagger stick. Dearmont does discover a stone tomb with four incredibly intricate statues of a Spanish conquistador, a colonial Frenchman, and American and Japanese soldiers mounted to it. Booming laughter makes Dearmont turn around. He's stunned to see two native men towering over him as if he were no bigger than an ant. Laughing. All right, no killjoy this time around. We're going to get to the uh, comments and commendations. And as Rich uh, hinted at in the preview, the uh, coming attractions last time around. Yeah, we all know where I'm starting on this one. Page three, panel four, the cat zap. One, there are few more effective ways to make me want to see a character meet a gruesome end than something like this right here. And two, using a zap collar on a cat will not make it more loyal to you in any way whatsoever. If a cat jumps into your arms after being zapped, it's just trying to get a better shot at your jugular vein. Take it from me, okay? <laughs> that aside, this was a great opening chapter. Uh, Dearmont's villainy is firmly established, even beyond his mistreatment of the cat. All right, I'll let that, you know, it's not the whole thing for me, but it's big. And the shock ending really holds up, even with the spoiler effect of the image on the issue's cover. For my art spotlights, I'm going to say page three, panel three, Alcala's rendition of the black cat. Yes, I'm going back to that. Innocently pursuing a butterfly is perfect and makes what follows this panel even more bloodthirst inspiring for me. Yet my cat Penny likes to go after butterflies when we take her on her walks. She has no hope of ever catching one. 
especially since we walk her on a leash and harness, but she enjoys the pursuit. If I have to pick a panel without a cat in it, and I probably should, as the dog agrees, getting sick of all the cat talk, actually go for page five, panel three. A sparse panel, but very well illustrated, with the beams of sunlight washing down onto stupid Deermont's very well-drawn face. That's a nice and deserved sense of illustration there. Also, page four, panel two, has the phrase, advanced poop. Okay, so we've had our fill of voodoo fun. Now we're going to go the head-shrinking native route. Okay, body shrinking. Ah, the 70s. As is usually the case, Alcala does his research and does a masterful job visually telling the story. The colorful splash page with the Japanese soldier being hit on the left, American forces storming ashore in the background, and air battles swirling overhead is grade A, as is the Japanese ambush on the U.S. Mounted Patrol on page four, panel four. You can see the cat jumping out of Dearmont's arms. Great touch. Can't wait to see where this goes. Yeah, and until I read the head-shrinking native comment of yours in the script, I had forgotten about that as such a trope. And then I'm like, I even owned back in the day. They were selling these things, and I got them, like, for Christmas or Halloween or something. You could make a shrunken head out of, like, an apple. I mean, <laughs> I, I shudder to look at what the packaging for those things <laughs> looked like. But, yeah, uh, it was a big deal. So good call out there. That was Definitely a sign of the times, you know, part of the cultural zeitgeist over here in the good old U.S. of A in that decade. So, yeah, and I probably will look that stuff up. Maybe we'll look it up and put it in the Facebook album later if it's not too horrible to behold. So, no, it probably will be. It probably will be, <laughs> yes. Uh, so we'll uh, move on to part two of Isle of Forgotten Warriors. It is seven pages long, and the synopsis goes a little something like this. As Dearmont stares in shock at the sight of the behemoth natives, two American soldiers pull him away to the barracks. The natives' thundering laughter follows as the colonel demands an explanation. The missing men and material didn't vanish. The natives shrank everything to the size of a peanut. No one knows their secret, but it's how they've kept invaders from conquering them for centuries. An elderly American veteran of the Spanish-American War is one of the captives, and he swears it to be true. The shrunken men are kept on a small piece of land surrounded by a moat, which is in turn surrounded by an electrified fence powered by flashlight batteries, that is. <laughs> the Americans have been digging a tunnel under the moat and figure they should be out beyond the fence. Escape is the plan. But Dearmont has other ideas. There are Japanese trapped on this little piece of land also. It doesn't matter if both sides have an informal truce. They should be destroyed before the Americans leave. Waving a twig like his lost swagger stick, Dearmont orders the all-out attack that night under threat of court-martial for disobedience. As the Americans prepare, it's obvious the Japanese know the attack is coming. The two towering natives watch with glee as the miniature tanks and infantry of both sides kill each other. Four more natives arrive to watch the show. The Japanese spring a trap and force the Americans to retreat. The four surviving GIs want to surrender, but Dearmont refuses, declaring their refusal to follow his orders to continue to fight as mutiny. Dearmont guns down his own men. 
Grabbing two hand grenades off their dead bodies, he runs into the barracks under the watchful eyes of the natives, planning to use the escape tunnel. The old man is waiting. It won't work, Colonel. I've seen lots of others try. They all wound up in the tomb. But it was Dearmont's duty to attempt it. Jumping into the tunnel, he lobs one of the grenades behind him to cut off any Japanese pursuit. The blast kills the old man. Running down the passage, Dearmont hears a strange noise. By the light of a flashlight, he's horrified to see a giant ant blocking his path. No killjoy. And I'll just hop into my CNC. Comments and commendations. If you didn't dislike Dearmont after part one, I'm pretty sure you do now. I've always liked the enemy of my enemy is my friend stories. It should really go without saying that if you've got, you've got bigger problems with the natives than with the Japanese, you already have an unofficial truce. Take advantage of it. Page 11, panel two. The two natives towering like gods over the fight, watching the tanks battle is fantastic. I also dig page 12, panel two of the natives sitting around the island like they're watching a football game. So yeah, this was an excellent follow-up to the first part of the story for sure. Dearmont's scumbaggery unfolds like a rotten flower as the pages go on, and the desire to see him get what's coming to him builds to a crescendo, even as he kills the old man who had nothing to do with any of this nonsense. Seeing the ant at the end makes me rub my hands together in glee, even if I do wonder afterward how the other guys never ran into such insectoid opposition before. Also... The sense of scale is all over the place in this story, just like it was on the cover. From the size of the island the soldiers are trapped on, even the tanks should be just barely visible to the naked eye. I can let it slide since the story is engaging and the art is so great otherwise, but it did mess with my reading experience a bit. My art spotlights uh, the opening splash panel really drives home the hopelessness of the soldiers' predicament. And I love seeing the amusement on the natives' faces. No wonder they're so friendly. All these invaders are their main source of entertainment. Page 9, panel 3 is cool, too, showing the natives casually strolling up to the island, even as we get some handy exposition from the soldiers. Nice touch with the electrified fence, too. But again, if that's the size of the island, the soldiers in their vehicles would be a lot smaller than they are often depicted but again, nitpickery from me. What do you know? <laughs> so and nitpickery is my job now. <laughs> yeah, pick, you know, like fantastic stuff. Like, well, if they are miniaturized, then surely the scale should be. I, I, I nitpick the, the fantastical nonsense. You nitpick the real stuff that, you know, has real world ramifications. <laughs> so, <laughs> Which is why we work so well together. Exactly. My head is in fantasy land, <laughs> tutting everybody. And uh, so, then, and you're in the real world telling me uh, whose buckles are incorrect and whatnot. So it works. There we go. That's part two. And Rich is going to hit you with or hit, uh, take us to part three of this full length battle tale. Six and a half pages, home stretch. An army of ants, eh? Are between Dearmont and Freedom. One snaps at the colonel, who barely manages to jump out of the way. Desperate, he sets his impromptu swagger stick on fire, turning it into a torch. The ants back off, scared of the flames. But his torch won't last forever, and the ants are ready to attack as soon as it goes out. It's then that Dearmont notices the queen ant nearby laying eggs. 
knowing that the ants care more for their queen than they do about him, Dermot lobs his second grenade at the nest. The blast destroys it, and as the ants scurry away to rescue their queen, Dermot escapes. Sure enough, the tunnel emerges on the far side of the fence. He's surprised to see his full-sized cat nearby and hurries towards her, thinking he could climb under her fur and get back to American lines that way. But the hungry cat hisses and crouches when it sees him. Dermot is horrified. She only makes that sound when she's angry. A swipe of her paw sends the colonel flying. Then another swipe. He lands near a swagger stick, the one with the remote control. The cat recognizes it and gets scared as he runs towards the button. Raising both arms to slam down on the massive button, the huge barefoot of a native steps on the stick, preventing the colonel from using it. The cat is immediately emboldened again, who swipes at Dearmond a third time. This time he goes flying through the air and crashes against the electrified fence. The blast of electricity kills him. Out to sea, yet another Japanese invasion force closes in on the island. None of them know that many of them are destined to join Lieutenant Colonel John Dearmont as a statue on the tomb. Love it. Yeah, so we got no Killjoy. We'll jump into C&C and, well, I get my explanation about why the other soldiers never ran into these ants right there in the opening splash page. That's a nice touch. I appreciated that. This took the adventure overall to yet another new locale, which keeps things fresh and feeling like the story is moving along. And adventure is about forward motion, people. So job well done. This creative team seems to understand that pretty well. So more violence to animals on Deermont's part. Sure. I kill ants if I find them in my house and likely would too if they were big enough to eat me no matter where I found them. But... Dearmont sucks, and he'd do this to anybody, even his fellow soldiers, so hey. <laughs> but, oh, the vengeance of the cat. So satisfying. I guess we're lucky that the native didn't step on the old zap button. But hey, it all worked out in the end. And Dearmont got a hell of a zap of his own. <laughs> <laughs> Watching the cat toy with Dearmont was a treat, as was the smirking look on the native's face when he intervened on the feline's behalf. Art-wise, yes, every panel featuring the cat, but I really do like that panel with the native smirking down at Dearmont, as I mentioned, and the cat peering at him like, ooh, sorry, buddy, you almost had it there. <laughs> Just so I don't pick two of the same panels as Rich, <laughs> was really amused by the almost overly comical running pose struck by Dearmont in page 17, panel 4. Feats don't fail me now. I can almost hear the Scooby-Doo running away sound effects. <laughs> yeah, no native women on this island, eh? Boys will be boys with their tiny little toys. I'll just leave that one alone. Anyone else get an Ant-Man vibe in this chapter, or was it just me? The cat gets revenge, and the cycle of rotating occupation continues. Have to wonder how long this will continue before one side or the other decided it just wasn't worth it. One thing I noticed... There's a tomb with four statues on it at the camp where Dearmont wakes up after being shrunken. There's also at least two more tombs where the natives can walk up to. So does the potion sometimes wear off after you die? If it does, do the natives put your petrified corpse on display on their tomb like they did with Dearmont? And if it doesn't, do they put you on the tiny one with a pair of tweezers and a magnifying glass? Yeah, this is the kind of thing that will keep me up at night. Anyway... We've mentioned before Alcala does a mean sky. Page 18, panel one, the sun rises over the jungle with the 
gnarled tree to one side. And page 20, panel one, the full body perspective of the tattooed native with the cat standing behind him is a great image. Yeah, this is fantastic. I mean, I bet these guys would build a hell of a train set, right? Like they, they, they got the skills. Man. They're setting up like, you know, little temples and whatnot. Just, ah, yeah, I, I want to go back to this island in a future issue. And you mentioned Ant-Man. And yeah, the, the first appearance of Ant-Man in Marvel Comics, he wasn't even going to be a superhero. It was just called the Man in the Ant Hill. And it was Dr. Henry Pym who accidentally <laughs> miniaturized himself and had to face off with a bunch of ants. So it's very much like the first appearance of Ant-Man. So, you know, who knows if that was a callback or not. But by this time, Ant-Man was a superhero. But when he first appeared, it was just a one-off, like, sci-fi story. So that's it. That's the end of the full-length battle tale in this issue. I think it's a pretty good one. We'll get back to that with last words. But before we go there, we're going to go to what passes for the APO Weird War Tales section. Yeah. Such as it is. No joke keyword header art this time, just a standard all cap font for the title. At least that gives us a half page letter page, not a third of the one from before. Orlando also has a quick note to say they're not replying to letters this month to make room for more reader comments. So I shall read the missive from Sam Franklin of San Diego, California. Dear Joe, Bird of Death was a pretty good weird story, but it didn't hold up on the war side too well. Still, the art was very good, and the scripting wasn't too wordy, so all in all, no complaints. The back feature was great in both departments, though. George Cashton somehow made a science fiction-oriented story into a very military thriller. The twist was very novel, and art, of course, was nothing less than spectacular. And as a personal note, you know, fart jokes, lots and lots of fart jokes. <laughs> Beans! As there should be. <laughs> we're not here because we're super mature people, all right? You know? Like, this isn't why we're reading 40-something-year-old war comics with, like, explosive beans and aliens in them. So I'll just say about this letter column... I'm not going to read one of the other letters because every letter in this stunted little column calls for more day after doomsday stories. I call BS. I think all that was inserted <laughs> by, by Orlando, but you know, maybe, maybe I'm on the outlier. Maybe I'm the outlier here. Who'd figure there are criticisms uh, for bird of death or um, as we just alluded to corporal fart bombs, private war, but only praise for that complete misfire of a day after doomsday feature come on now i'm well, done hey I'm, I'm, i will say one thing because I'm, I'm, you know me I, I i skip ahead a little bit i just got done reading uh, issue 30 and the day after doomsday reappears in that issue and that one i actually liked so hopefully you shall too and it's the start of a new direction for the little um, in-house mini filler hey i'll give it a chance i love post-apocalypse type stories just like you do i should love day after doomsday so if you say it's a good one i'll probably dig it so that's our weird war tales apo you know letters page as so we might want to call it out of the way now we're going to jump into spotlighted ads and i'll <laughs> kick it off i was a about to give up altogether on the ads in this issue to be honest but then 
between pages four and five of part one of the story, I saw this ad for the haunting sound effects record. I remember people playing these kinds of things on speakers that were run out onto their front porches when I was trick-or-treating back in the day. Those houses always stood out and stuck in my memory longer than others. Odds were that a house like that, they were also going to give out great candy. You know, they, they put full effort in. They're playing like a record with sound effects and stuff. So, you know, they often decorated their porches. They wore their own costumes. They were just overall more hardcore into the holiday than other stops along the way on my trick-or-treating route. So... I give this ad an easy win from me, owing to the nostalgia factor and the pretty nice illustration that accompanies the ad of the creepy ghoul in the house and everything. So I dug that. That that was my favorite ad of the issue. What you got? First, just because this is where my mind went, after no fewer than six bulk up and beat em up ads, the back cover is an ad for a Daisy BB gun which kind of seems to imply to me, if all else fails, just shoot him. You know, just like reality, sigh. Anyway, I was actually thinking about the haunting ad, but for my real ad, it had to be the surprise coin packet. We all know that I collect comic books, but my second vice is coins, and it takes up a hell of a lot less space. I'm always digging through my change, looking for wheat pennies, silver coins, or whatever the latest quarter coming out is. Collect coins. The hobby road to riches. Surprise coin packet. One dollar. Thousands of old coins up to 100 years old. Guaranteed. At least one dollar. Current catalog, value, and packaged. Ready to go. Many packets may contain coins worth much more. And it just rattles off, you know, like uh, 1909S, 1914D, 1950D, you know, pennies, nickels, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, gold coins, rare coins, uncirculated, silver crowns, and on and on and on and on. So, yeah, that 1914D penny, yeah, the U.S. Mint only made a bit over a million of them. And one in lousy shape can start at 100 bucks. One in great shape is thousands. So, yeah, check those sofa cushions, people. I would just like to say, nerd. <laughs> but, but I collect comic books. <laughs> 1914D, sir, I tell you. So, uh, well, yeah, how much money did you have tied up in the D&D and magic? Okay, so, oh, yeah. <laughs> not, not really magic. I was into the even more obscure, even nerdier trading card games, like uh, the Star Trek game from Decipher, and let's see, uh, Shadow Fist, and, and other nerdy <laughs> games. So, yeah, I don't have a leg to stand on, but I had to do that anyway, because you set me up perfectly. With that little nerd slap fight out of the way, we will move on to a section. Yeah. <laughs> we'll move on to a section we like to call Got Any Last Words? This is definitely one of the best full-length stories we've seen so far. I could perhaps even argue the best. Cashton crafts an intriguing tale and Alcala masterfully illustrates it, including his trademark one-eyed ghoulish narrator. The repetitive ads and half-page letters page drag the issue back a bit, as does the cover upon closer review, but it's still in the top 25 for yours truly. Recommended. Yep. It may have sounded like I was nitpicking a lot in my CNC sections. It probably was, but I absolutely loved this issue. 
the experience of reading it overall. It was just a blast. And the cat got its vengeance in the end. So, you know, I'm happy. I bet that little fireball is going to play a recurring role in the native's little game from here on out. <laughs> or at least I hope so. <laughs> yeah, the ads were kind of for crap for the most part, and the letters page might as well have not been there. But I'd hand this issue to anyone that wanted to check this series out for the first time. This is a great example. If someone says, what's Weird War Tales like? Hand them this issue. So all that's out of the way. We're going to hit the dead letter office where we take uh, some time to recognize people that have been nice enough to stop by, give us a like, give us a share, leave some comments on Twitter, on Facebook, you know, where you can find us uh, and, and let us know what you think. So we're going to get on to that. This one... This uh, Dead Letter Office is going to be talking about episode 28, which uh, was a special mission where we took a look at GI Combat 112, and we released it on this past Memorial Day. So before I get down into the nitty gritty, I'm going to mention that we have the uh, red with <laughs> that we have on redbubble.com. We have the Weird Warriors Podcast PX, where you can get our cool logo designed and drawn by Bill Walco of the hero business on just about anything you could possibly want. And Rich has been good enough to put a direct link on our Facebook page, which I will share on Twitter to the store where you can actually find our stuff because uh, Redbubble, the, the interface, not so good. People have been having a hard time finding what they want. So that is on the Facebook page that will be shared on Twitter. And uh, y'all can thank Rich for that because he, he, does these the, he does this extra kind of stuff for you guys okay you're so, welcome yes like uh, the facebook page is 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 like just it's sick what rich does for you people over there <laughs> a little gratitude buy yeah. some stuff there's a, a pillow well, come, come on. on buy the pillow <laughs> somebody's gotta buy the pillow what the heck <laughs> so over on twitter where we are at weird war pod people stop by including fantastic comic fan back in the bronze age bill at spy vinyl my buddy bill on twitter the telltale mind doc strange mr billy delicious himself clinton from coffee and comics and uh, dr bob at dr bob's kitchen one of the checkered chums from the checkered past podcast i will always stop to mention those guys at go go check at go go check pod on twitter uh martin gray sir martin of gray stopped by and wayne burrows also did over on the awesome facebook page which i was just going on and on about we uh, had a visitations from david Steele of the earth two podcast billy d ken boutillier tim deforest and luke ed who just revealed to us that he is luke jacanetti so he had a secret identity going on over on Facebook. So Luke Giaconetti stopped by. Matt Caruso and Rich Gallagher also swung by the Facebook page to say hello over on Gmail, where you can write us at weirdwarriorspodcast at gmail.com. Our good buddy, Jason Zeller, the founder of the Jason Zeller Binge Listener Award, wrote in and reminded us of a cool quote from the issue, reminding me that we should spotlight writing more often in the CNC sections. And I didn't do that this time around, but you know, in the future. He also complimented my Jeb's ghost voice, specifically saying it was better than Rich's Attila. No accounting for so talent. Yeah, exactly. And you know, <laughs> I read Gmail, so you got to take my word for it. <laughs> so that's official. Can't fight it. That's what Jason said. <laughs> I'd like to thank the Academy, but what have they ever done for me? And well, only Jason wrote in, folks. I don't mean only 
because Jason's emails are always great. And feedback like his has helped improve the show for sure. But, you know, if you want your name mentioned on this part of the show, there's only one way to make it happen. Like I said, weirdwarriorspodcast at gmail.com. Now, with all that out of the way, we're going to bring the show to an end here. But Rich is going to hit you with the teaser for the next episode. Weird War Tales number 29. Because I say so. Torture and interrogation. Fake news. Judge Reinhold? I can promise a lengthy history minute for each tale. Tune in as I light my pipe and put on the old tweed jacket. Oh, I can't wait. I can kick my feet back in that episode. <laughs> put them up on the old desk. <laughs> I love it. And we just saw, Gail and I were just watching a Seinfeld, you know, whatever, uh, episode on Netflix the other night. And it's the one where Judge Reinhold's in it, the close talker. So I was just explaining to her who the heck he is the other night. That's cool. I love it. And fake news, torture, and interrogation. Uh, yeah, great. So it's an issue that came out in 2022. Nice. <laughs> oh, it's it's going to be so relaxing. I'll, I'll, I'll tell oh, you that. I can, I, I, like I said, lots of history minute. Uh, people, get ready. That's going to be a cool one. Everyone loves the history minutes, and they don't have to listen to me talk. So here we go. If you didn't like this one, because I was, you know, I was in your ear holes a bit too often, we got that one coming up. So until then, this has been the Weird Warriors podcast. We have been the Weird Warriors. I am Max. He is Rich. We are the Batlam Bros, and we promise to make war. No more. <laughs>